Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with the Chief Investment Officer of Latrobe Financial, Chris Andrews. We're talking primarily about a product or an investment offering, which, to be frank, most advisors such as myself have probably viewed as a little bit retail or turned our noses up to it a little bit, if I had to be frank. We're talking to him about Latrobe's offering in the pooled mortgage market, which is currently offering around 4.5%, which is very appealing for a lot of investors who are struggling with very low interest rates. Latrobe Financial is an organization that is now managing about $11 billion in these type of strategies. And of course, the organization is now 80% owned by Blackstone, one of the world's largest asset managers. So we talked to Chris about what the risks are associated with the type of strategy and what the outlook going forward is. And of course, how they are coping through the COVID range where people have often struggled or there's been a level of people deferring their interest payments on their mortgages. Please remember, this episode is not designed to be specific advice. I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek advice before making any investments. Please keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Your feedback's much valued. Please enjoy the episode. Chris Andrews, welcome to Inside the Rope. Pleasure to be with you, David. Thanks for having us. Chris, perhaps you could uh, kick off by giving our listeners an understanding of who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. So I'm Chief Investment Officer at Latrobe Financial. Uh, Latrobe is a business who've been around a while. We started in 1952. Uh, We were started with a deep conviction in granular credit exposures, and really we've been there ever since. So that's residential, commercial, uh, construction and development loans and the like, always secured by a registered first ranking mortgage over property, plenty of collateral margin for safety. Uh, We've had seven decades of experience and that tells us that this type of exposure is incredibly resilient to market volatility and economic downturns, which when we talk to investors, they tend to understand the intuitive reasons for that. Like in in an economic crunch, a, a person can always sell their stock portfolio, they can sell their bonds. But their family home, their business premises, um, that's a different kettle of fish. They still need somewhere to live and work, even in difficult times. And that for us dampens the volatility. It dampens the the ups and downs, if you like, of the economic cycle in that part of the market. Uh, And that's the sort of dynamic that we're trying to capture in our portfolios and in our peer-to-peer offerings too, for that matter. Uh, Our objective is to deliver capital stability and uh, consistent monthly income and to do so via highly diversified portfolios of these granular loans. Um, We've managed, well, we manage and have managed over the the last 70 years, over $25 billion cumulatively for investors of all types. So today we manage funds for, uh, well, for many of Australia's largest banks and finance houses and indeed many of the world's largest banks and finance houses. We run a sophisticated debt capital markets program for fund managers, for pension funds and the like. And we also uh, run Australia's largest credit fund, which has got a range of offerings for everyone from fund managers, family offices, high net worths, right through to retail investors. And And I'd say that, yeah, I was just just gonna say, uh, David, that while each of these segments has got its own unique approach, there's a consistent theme. 
and that's what our portfolios look to build on. We want to allow investors to tailor their exposures to this asset class, but we want to deliver that capital preservation and consistent premium real income. And Chris, what does your role as Chief Investment Officer entail? Yeah, so so our investment strategy is not built around big investment calls or bets by me or anyone else here at the organization, David. It's a very it's it's very much about dealing a really rigorous process that we can continue to execute day in, day out. So we see each year about twelve and a half billion of investable opportunities, which of which will probably settle about five and a half to six billion. Uh, And we do so via a very rigorous process executed firstly by our credit analysts. We've got 150 trained uh, credit analysts to assess these applications that come in from across the country. Uh, And then from those approved assets, our portfolio managers put together the portfolios that, uh, that our investors are ultimately investing in. So my role as CIO is obviously to ensure we maintain our really strong disciplines and that the portfolio is evolving over time with the level of diversification and exposure we like to see. And Chris, maybe we can talk a little bit about your, what I would perceive as your headline product um, in the market. And so, so I would perceive that to be the 12 month term account, uh, which at the moment's offering uh, retail investors four and a half percent after fees. A, is, is that the headline sort of product, the volume of it, and maybe talk a little bit about what's on the other side of that and what people are actually investing in? Yeah, that is well known as our headline or our flagship product, uh, David. So we've got about three and a half billion in that particular strategy. It started in October 2002. Really, the investment strategy there is the embodiment of everything that I've said uh, previously. So it's granular exposures. At the end of June, we had 6,028 individual first ranking secured mortgage loans in there, maximum loan to value ratio of 75% uh, and average um, loan to value ratio of 63%. Its average investment size is just over $550,000. So that gives you a sense of what I'm talking about when I talk about granular exposures. That is genuinely genuinely what we're trying to deliver for investors. So the 12-month term account, as I say, it's been around since 2002. So we've got a pretty good line of sight on its performance through the cycle. Never lost investors a cent of capital, which is very pleasing for us. That's what we try to do for investors. It is fair to say that it's a it's a strategy that is really comes into its own in, own in times like this, where markets are volatile, where investors are you know uncertain as to what the next gyration, next turn of the wheel will take us. It is a consistent you know performed consistently through the financial crisis, for example. Uh, and continues to do so today. So yes, 4.5% is its current headline rate of return. It, uh, we review that every month, as you'd expect. Um, it's a variable rate of return, but it is one we look to manage at a very consistent level. So we only make adjustments when the income profile of the fund has shifted, either up or down. So those 6,000 loans to people that secured against property, are they all underwritten by yourselves or are you providing finance into other organisations who are actually writing and assessing those loans? No, 100% written by our own credit analysts, uh, David, the 150 credit analysts I've referred to before. We've had a, we at some point in the past have received an application from a borrower We've gone through the old fashioned five C's of credit. We've assessed the creditworthiness of the borrower. 
Uh, we are, you know, like all mainstream lenders like the banks, our credit activities are regulated by ASIC. We hold an Australian credit license. We're subject to the responsible lending obligations of the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. All of that is overlaid onto our credit assessment process. Uh, and uh, assuming our credit analysts approve the loan is within our credit appetite and consistent with our credit acceptance criteria, we then pass the loan to our portfolio managers who make an assessment as to whether we would like it in our portfolios. So it's a very disciplined process that we apply there. And how did that behave? You alluded to it behaved quite well during the GFC, but maybe you could give us a little bit more detail of how it behaved during the GFC and what you've seen through COVID since February, and we're recording this uh, at the start of August. Maybe you could tell mm. us what you've seen so far and then what your outlook is um, given the COVID circumstances. Mm, certainly worth time stamping discussions at the moment, mm. David, given that things are moving so quickly. So uh, through the global financial crisis, there were some funds in the sector that got into trouble with their liquidity management profile, obviously. Uh, so, so some funds, even funds that had really good quality assets in them were forced actually to freeze or gate restrict, uh, redemption requests from investors. So the 12 month term account was not one of those funds. It, it offered flawless liquidity throughout uh, for its investors and has continued to do so right through to today. So that's another part, you know, the, the, the capital preservation on the one hand, being able to say that we've never lost a cent of, in capital, uh, of capital is one thing. Uh, the, the other part of that equation though, is to say that we've never had to freeze or restrict redemptions in any way in the 12 month term account. So uh, in, it's continued to pay monthly income it probably won't surprise you or your listeners, David, given where market interest rates are, to know that it has never actually delivered lower than its current rate of return, 4.5%. And that's, of course, reflective of the historic low interest rate environment. But it does give you a sense, too, that it is a portfolio that continues to perform through difficult periods. As we sit here right now, well, what are the challenges? Well, um, obviously, like most lenders in the country, we saw through through sort of that mid-March right through to early April, we saw uh, a whole lot of borrowers become concerned about what would happen to their jobs and they requested hardship assistance. Now, for us, like all lenders, hardship assistance is a, it's really a business as usual process in the sense that we will always have a small number of borrowers who request hardship assistance because of temporary personal circumstances, natural disasters and the like. What was a little bit different was obviously the scale of those hardship requests. So we saw a massive surge through March and early April. And in fact, at one point, it was about 15% of the portfolio who had requested hardship arrangements. Um, we were comfortable to manage that level for a time, but obviously we were looking very carefully as to how long current distribution rates would be sustainable at those levels and doing a lot of modelling around that. What's been really pleasing for us, though, is how quickly those borrowers have recovered. So we saw we sort of uh, hit peak hardship levels in mid-May. By the end of May, they dropped to sort of 12.8%. By the end of June, they were at 8.8%. Um, and we'll see that we are, you know, our, our end of July figures, we're just going through the final processes now, but it looks like they're going to come in at about 5.5% of the portfolio. So it's a cohort that's recovering really quickly, which is which has been terrific. But if you add, you know, healthy dose, dose of realism, if I could say that, David, put it like that, some of those remaining, you know, 5.5% of the portfolio will have experienced a change in their circumstances. Their business will have gone bad. They might have lost their jobs or whatever. We will be working with those borrowers on a workout basis. Now, 
Our current expectation is that might settle down around two to three percentage points of the overall portfolio. So it's certainly a manageable level, but we've added additional resources, obviously, to our hardship and collections team to ensure that we're really actively engaging with those borrowers. We're having discussions early. Um, one of the advantages, obviously, is having the low loan to value ratio. Is Everyone accepts that as a margin for safety, and that's very obvious to, to any observer. The thing that's a little less obvious is the alignment of interest it creates. So when our hardship and collections team are talking to those borrowers, they are saying, you have got a minimum of 25% equity in this loan. So if your circumstances have changed and if you are unable to meet your obligations under the loan contract, the best course of action for you is to cooperate with us, sell the security property and pay out the loan before the interest eats away at your equity. Um, so the fact that we can have that sort of aligned conversation with those borrowers is a very important dynamic in a market like this. I think it's also interesting maybe to point out to listeners that unlike the US, uh, that during the GFC really had a problem with um, you know, so-called ninja loans of no income, yes. no job, uh, et cetera, and people taking out loans where when property values fell and there was an economic downturn, they sim simply just mailed the keys to their property back to their lender and walked away. Well, we have a different legislative framework in Australia, which really doesn't allow for that. And I think through the GFC, those type of defaults were very low. Yes, that's, that's a very good point, David. So jingle mail, they used to call it when the borrowers would return their keys in the mail to the lender and say, you take it over because I'm in a position of negative equity. You know, the, the old um, uh, IT or computer world saying that they used to, we used to hear in the early 90s, garbage in, garbage out. If you mm -hmm. write poor quality loans, ultimately, if you're invested in a portfolio of poor quality loans, that will be exposed. And certainly the lending practices in the US in the lead up to the, to the uh, global financial crisis were substandard. Um, and um, we are fortunate in Australia to operate in a well-regulated environment. And certainly, you know, I referred before to the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. That requires us, it gives us the absolute obligation for every loan with that we do to ensure that the borrower can meet their obligations without substantial hardship. So if we were to do a ninja loan or a Nina loan even, a job to a borrower with no income and no assets, we would be in breach of the responsible lending provisions of the National Consumer Protection Act. So that's a, an important part of the, the background framework that makes this such an efficient market in Australia. And Chris, one of the, I, I guess, standout questions to me would be is you're paying at the moment to retail investors 4.5% per annum variable, which I, I know you said historically is a very low number for yourselves, but relative to cash rates, of I think the cash rate's half a percent at the moment um, mm. and globally very, very low. One of the things fueling, um, you know, just an endless thirst for yield income and, and in many ways driving a lot of equity markets is, and, and on the other side, you, you know that if you go to the bank today and you're a decent lender, a decent borrower, um, you're probably going to get a rate with three in front of it, um, if not a two in front of it, for a standard variable rate. And I, I, I would imagine you've got processing analysts um, uh, plus a margin in there. How is it that you're able to pay the lender in this case 
um, or an investor four and a half percent when you know uh, most of us would be thinking at the moment if we went to refinance with the bank we'd be looking for something with a two in front of it mm, so the first the first note of caution I'd offer David is be careful about comparing our portfolio to sort of a vanilla first home buyer's sort of home loan portfolio. We, we, it's a mixed commercial and residential portfolio. Um, so, so we've got to be careful we're comparing apples with apples. We do have commercial loans. We do have construction and development loans. We do have other types of loans in there. Even though um, if we focus even just for a moment on our residential book, you've got to be clear, we're targeting borrowers very explicitly, and this is what we've done for seven decades. We're targeting borrowers who do not get good service from the mainstream banks. We assess their applications rigorously, so that's a, a full manual credit assessment rather than the sort of the automated ticker box approach that we see from the majors. Likewise, we send an independent valuer out to the security property to manually assess and value it, so that's rather than relying on automated valuation methods. Our borrowers do pay a premium for that service and for our speed in turnaround. That's what drives, if you like, the alpha, the consistent yields that we've delivered for our investors over the years and across multiple economic cycles. I mean, I could, you know, go on about this for some considerable time, but let me make let me make just perhaps two points. The first is there are whole cohorts of loans that simply don't get good service. Think of self-managed superannuation fund loans. So those borrowers are outstanding credit prospects. They virtually never default. They default much less frequently than even the highest quality cohorts of regular homeowners. And yet the banks don't lend to them. Why? Because reg the regulatory framework, their capital, uh, their capital requirements for those assets, they're classified as non-standard mortgages. And so they need to hold more capital, which on top of the fact that it's a relatively small sector means it's just not economic for the banks to lend to. We look at that through a pure asset manager's lens and we say, here is a borrower who is lower risk and for whom and to whom we can charge a higher interest rate. What an outstanding credit prospect, what an outstanding risk return prospect for our portfolio. Uh, and, and look, to pick a few data points, you know, when you, when you think about our 12 month uh, term account, and it's all, it's all transparent by the way, we publish our portfolio stats in great detail on our website site every month. So I do encourage your investors to, to take a look at our website if they're ever interested. As I said before, our average loan to value ratio is just 64%. So we've got about $160 in real property assets securing every $100 lent. 92% of our borrowers have zero credit events on their credit history. 89% of our borrowers are A rated on our internal risk matrix. 84% of borrowers in the 12 month term account have an Equifax credit rating, so a credit score of good or higher. Now that's important obviously because it's an external third party data point, but all of those data points and indeed the performance of the, of, of the strategy over, over almost two decades now shows the rigorousness with which we select the borrowers who go in. And Chris, uh, when I, on your website, one of the things that states right at the start, and uh, you can see in one of the photos there that it's a Blackstone portfolio company. Ah, yes. yes. Tell our listeners uh, how that transpired and what that means for them or what they should think of that today when they see that. Yeah, so Blackstone, of course, are one of the world's, uh, perhaps the, one of the largest asset managers in the world in this day and age, and certainly they're one of the world's largest property holders. Uh, they're one of the world's largest investors in credit. Uh, 
So Blackstone, based out of New York, uh, have a number of streams to their business. They have property, they have credit, they have private equity and what they call tactical opportunities. A number of years ago, they took the view that the non-bank space was going to be increasingly important for the world in the years ahead. And that's, that's happily a view that we share here at Latrobe Financial. And they started investing in that thesis across the world. So they purchased a non-bank in the UK, they invested in a non-bank uh, in the US and in India. They brought the ruler to the sector here in Australia, looked at the non-bank sector here, and there was a meeting of minds between uh, their, um, their investment team and our shareholders. And um, happily, we were able to form a strategic partnership. So that occurred in 2017. It's been a very happy partnership ever since. When they came in bo on board, their instructions to us were pretty simple. They said, we love your conservative approach to credit. We love your loan, low loan to value ratios. We love your credit fund. So we're not here asking you to leverage up. We're not asking you, we're not here to ask you to change your credit process. We want you to stay absolutely on point, focused on the uh, assessment process with the same discipline that you always have. Uh, so it was a really terrific meeting of mind and it's been a really happy strategic partnership ever since. In fact, if, if I reflect on this coronavirus episode in particular, uh, David, uh, it, it is fair to say that their global networks, you know, gave us really good real-time information as to how that was playing out, perhaps a little bit ahead of the media cycle here in Australia, which obviously assisted us in preparing for our, our business continuity requirements and so on. So, you know, we see in that, we see in their incredible network amongst global uh, investors, um, their really strong relationships with the banking sector, both here in Australia and internationally, we see a lot of ways in which it's been really productive for us to work together. And Chris, is, uh, are you managing or have you deployed any of Blackstone's capital? Does that sit within no. the organisation? No. Yeah, no, no. So Blackstone, Blackstone and, and this is an important point too, David, so I'm glad you raised it. They haven't invested in the business. Um, they haven't recapitalised the business. Uh, they don't have any executives in the business. They are a shareholder in the business. Our, uh, our president and CEO, Mr. Greg O'Neill, he remains in the business. He retains 20% of the shareholding in the business. He's been in the business um, since the early 1980s. Uh, so it's great continuity there, but it is the addition of a really strong strategic partner uh, to the Latrobe financial story. And, and you know, when we talk to ratings agencies, when we talk to these global investors, they regard it as, as, as both credit and ratings positive. So it's been a really good story for us. And Chris, how do you think about diversification? Obviously, you've got a fair volume around 6,000 in that product we've been focusing on, uh, 6,000 different uh, lenders, if you'd like, um, how are they diversified and how do you like to manage that diversification? Uh, are you talking geography? You've told different types of clients in terms of commercial, residential, etc. Can you Can you maybe elaborate for our listeners, please? Mm, we diversify on a whole number of levels, David. So we certainly diversify by size of loan. We don't like our portfolios concentrated in individual large loans. What we've seen over the years uh, is that when portfolios in this sector gets into trouble, very often it's because they're concentrated in a few large assets that cause uh, outsized difficulties for the portfolio in a downturn. So certainly size of loan, 
number of loan. You've heard our exposures, 6,028 at the end of June. We diversify by geography. Broadly speaking, our portfolio reflects the Australian economy. Now it evolves for the ups and downs of what's going on uh, for market, but it does so very organically and over time. So broadly speaking on the eastern seaboard of Australia, but but you know mostly metropolitan where there's a broad and deep secondary market in the event that we have to take possession of a security property and sell it. Uh, in, we, we also like to diversify by sector. Uh, and by that, you know, as I was referring to before, it's not just residential mortgages, it's also commercial, it's also light industrial, it's also construction and development loans. We like measured exposures in each of those sectors. A larger sector is residential, but certainly measured exposures across those sectors, again, to add layers of diversification into the portfolio performance profile. And Chris, what do you think with your outlook and your crystal ball, what's the strongest mm. of those sectors? And the counter to that, what would you be most concerned about at the moment? Mm. So where, where we, uh, you, what, what long history tells us is that if you are lending to the broad middle of residential mortgages in Australia, you are in a very strong, low volatile part of the market. So if you look, for example, we've seen uh, uh, property prices come off in Sydney and Melbourne by around sort of four to five percent over the last three or four months. Um, most of those losses have been seen in the trophy property. So at the top end and the bottom end is very commonly where you see most property prices fall in a downturn event. Certainly the down, downturn we saw between 2017 and 2019 in Sydney and Melbourne, that was again present in, in that, market, uh, that market event. So we like that very broad middle sector of the market. It is fair to say that when the coronavirus uh, was at its most uh, pointed, if you like, in March and April, we took a very cautious view, particularly on construction and development and large commercial exposures. We feel like we've got a better sense of where those uh, opportunities are developing now. So we're happy to look at those on a case by case basis. But there is, if you like, a, a COVID overlay to our credit assessment process because we have to be realistic. Some of the borrowers who were excellent credit prospects in January or February uh, through no fault of their own because of this oh, endogenous restaurant event. owners. Yeah, yeah, well, correct. You know, and they could be terrific credit prospects in a normal environment, but this is very unusual. Obviously, we don't have a lot of restaurant owners in the portfolio, which is more luck than good management, I've got to say, David. But it is, it, you know, th those sorts of people who could be terrific borrowers. So in many ways, our hearts go out to them. But as a credit manager, we've got to be sort of um, hard-headed and clear-sighted about the investment decisions we're making. So we are, we are applying additional care to those sectors at this time. And Chris, from a practical sense, if somebody's invested in your 12-month term account uh, and for, for what, what is the liquidity access they have in process in event of emergency or a sudden need for those funds or are they locked in absolutely for that 12-month period? So what we say to investors is, as a, as a general rule, when you come to us, you know, it's a 12-month term. Now, there is a, a sort of separate platform offering, which I, which I won't uh, get lost in now unless you'd like to explore it further, David. But it's a 12-month it's a term, which means investors should think of it in that way. We're not after your grocery money. We're not after the money you had sort of put aside to buy your grandkids a present in six months or what have you. It's the genuine 12-month investment. From time to time, we will have investors come to us who say, look, um, you know, 
need to go into an aged care facility with like the money for a, a bond or you know maybe uh, some emergency has arisen in their personal circumstances and they'd like to consider uh, an early redemption we're more than happy to consider those we consider those on a case by case basis over the since sort of March April David we've been looking at those really and we've we've been giving preference to borrowers who have demonstrated hardship under the under the coronavirus pandemic or you know other particular personal circumstances so we've at the at the moment we're regarding that as a hardship um, as, as a hardship only request but certainly as markets settle down an early redemption request can be considered subject to liquidity and a, and a fee so the fee is 1.5 percent okay terrific and can you tell us a little bit about the types of investors you tend to attract uh, or, or have had track record I, I'm I'm thinking of this through the lens of Typically, I would associate more of a direct consumer um, type of uh, business model and probably a little bit hard done by by people in the sophisticated wholesale end of the market mm. who have seen this as a bit of a more mums and dads retail type product. We are currently sitting at about a third, a third and a third, if I can put it like that, David. So we've got about a third from uh, what you would describe as sort of the family office, ultra high net worth, high net worth investor cohort. Mm -hmm. uh, in the, within that, I'm, in, I'm including a few investor types. We've got a, a small bank, we've got uh, um, some fund managers and the like. We've got a third, as you would say, in that sort of direct retail base and then we've got a third who come to us through advisors and wealth groups so broad you know that's in in broad outline okay. that's the type of investor who comes to us it is a very uh wide cohort and chris people would also remember through the gfc and through the 90s um you know there were a few sort of well-known sort of blow-ups in this space mm. for lack mm. of a better term what mm. what is different to latrobe than those type of business models and those financial products yes and and this is an important question too so uh you know our sector isn't alone in the funds management industry that has had its share uh and there are some pretty clear lessons that can be learned you know talk early 90s the likes of estate mortgages and farrow group um and then through the you know there's, a, there's been an inglorious parade ever since of sort of, you know, the likes of Banksia and Provident Capital in Sydney and the LM Group in Queensland. So, and then the funds that froze during the financial crisis. So there's a, there's a few red flags, I'd say, when you're investing in this sector that you need to be really careful about. So the first red flag is a manager doing related party loans. Almost invariably, where you see a manager in this space go bust spectacularly, they're doing it on the basis of loans to related parties. So that's constitutionally prohibited at Latrobe Financial. We're not property developers masquerading as credit fund managers. We're absolutely true to label. We are lending to borrowers who have been originated at arm's length. I'm not permitted to borrow from the credit fund. Uh, the, um, you know, some other issues you might want to look out for, concentrated portfolios I've already talked about. Uh, there are particular asset types which can, which, which in themselves are fine uh, and you think of things like land development projects you think of large construction and development projects in themselves they're fine but investors who invest in them need to be aware that they come with a significant amount of risk hence the outsized returns you can receive or, or that are advertised at the point of investment at least for those so we don't do land banking 
We don't do those very large tower construction and development projects where you can have industrial relations issues, where you can have massive delays because of weather uh, and so on. So those are some of the red flags on the asset side. When you're talking about liquidity, that's another issue that investors do need to be very focused on because you had, asset, you had managers with quality assets get into liquidity issues through the global financial crisis and that was simply because they weren't appropriately managing the asset liability mismatch that they, that they held in their books. So um, to your question earlier, we do always encourage investors very much who are investing in the 12-month term account to think about this as a 12-month investment. It rewards them with an outsized return for the illiquidity position that they take. And that is what is a significant protection against the inherent asset liability mismatch that, that really is inherent in any fund investing in illiquid assets. And indeed, <laughs> this is a personal view, David, but many funds in theoretically liquid assets also face some hidden asset liability mismatch issues because as they say, the uh, when everyone's running for the exits, the doors are remarkably small. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so that is something we take very seriously here at Latrobe. And honestly, that's been reflected in the, in the track record that we've delivered for our investors. Well, Chris, fantastic. That's been a great summary. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me at Inside the Road. It's been a real pleasure, David. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.